All right, let's get started. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight as we engage in this study. We know that without the Holy Spirit, all is vain in trying to understand or trying to speak the Word of God. So we ask that you would be with us tonight. Give me the words to say. And those that hear, give them the understanding as well, Lord. And we pray that the end result for this would be to your glory and for edification of the body. We ask that you would be with our pastor as he's traveling out of town, that we would return him safely home to us from Chattanooga, Lord. pray these favors and blessings in your name. Amen. In our Tuesday evening men's group, we've been studying through Second Peter, and we recently finished the second chapter of Second Peter and moved on into uh, chapter 3. And we've been discussing the subject of false teachers, which is what I plan to speak on tonight. False teachers, which is the full content of chapter 2 of Second Peter. One of the things that resonated with us as we studied this passage was the strength and repetitious nature in which the Holy Spirit through Peter denunciates and condemns false teachers repeatedly and with strong language. He refers to them as brute beasts, stains and blemishes. They're like dogs returning to their vomit, like pigs wallowing in their mire. And for them is reserved the black darkness. Suffice it to say that this passage is a strong condemnation against false teachers. Probably one of the strongest condemnations and judgments spoken against anyone in the whole of Scripture. Uh, it, it does rival Jesus' uh, condemnation of the Pharisees and the scribes in chapter 23 of, of Matthew. And of course, they would be the false teachers of Jesus' day, the leaven of the Pharisees. In fact, if we can recall to remembrance that chapter, we remember that, that Jesus does use similar language to the Pharisees and to the scribes, he calls them hypocrites, blind guides, lawless, filled with greed and self-indulgence, something that uh, Peter is going to speak to as well with the false prophets and false teachers of, of Peter too. calls them a brood of vipers and whitewashed sepulchers filled with dead men's bones. And that language very much mirrors what Peter has to say in chapter 2 here. One of the uh, interesting portions of Matthew 23 that I think illuminates a little bit the weight in which we are to view and understand the destructive nature of the false teaching of the Pharisees and, and, and false teachers, all of them included, is a, a portion of Scripture that is here in Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. And I want to read that here says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So there's a very, very negative nature, and that articulates just how destructive false teaching can be. To take someone who is in a state where they don't know God 
and actually put them in even a worse position than that. And I don't think he's just using figurative language either to describe that. I think he's, he's, that is the nature of the negative fruit that false, false teachers will bring out, that they will bring now someone who doesn't know God is now saying things and representing themselves as if they are God and speaking for God's behalf, and that is even worse. So they, they have a, make themselves twice the son of hell as yourselves. So there's a, a, a very strong condemnation both by Jesus and by Peter of false teachers and false prophets. And we're going to look at that tonight. It's important to understand, you know, just how destructive this, the nature of false teaching is. And, and Peter, in this passage, he, he talks in chapter 1 about uh, paying diligence. And, and uh, it's a very motivating epistle. He talks a couple times about the, the idea that he's trying to stir them up, stir up remembrance um, so that they can bring this to their mind, so they'll heed the things that he says, so that when he's gone, they'll remember these things. So he, he places a lot of emphasis on what he's saying and, and, and is, is challenging his readers um, to observe this, to, to study it, and, and to uh, be aware of the, the tactics and strategies of false teachers. Uh, he starts just, we'll have to get a little bit of a, a lead into chapter 2 from chapter 1. That'll be necessary to get a foundation. Because I said, it, it, you know, it's a motivating passage and he's trying to stir you up. He mentions in, in chapter 1 and verse 5, he's talking about genuine faith and true believers. And, he, and he's challenging them. He says, give all efforts and give... Or make every effort and give diligence to add to your faith and supplement it with moral excellence and to your moral excellence knowledge and in your knowledge self-control and in your self-control perseverance and in your perseverance godliness and in your godliness brotherly kindness and in your brotherly kindness love. And we'll see that how that is very much contrasted with the techniques and the false doctrine of the false teachers in chapter 2. But he's wanting to establish this as a foundation before he starts warning about them. He talks several times about giving diligence in, in chapter, or in verse 10 of uh, chapter 1, giving diligence to make your calling and election sure. He says in chapter 15, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. So, before we jump into the text here uh, in verse 1 of chapter 2, uh, I want to read the last few verses to plant that foundation for what he's about to say about the false teachers. And I'm, gonna re- I'm just going to read verses 16 through 21 here, the last verses of uh, chapter 1. And he says... For we did not follow cleverly devised tales, and that's, that's going to come up in contrast again in chapter 2 when he talks about the methods of the false teacher. They certainly devise clever tales to try to deceive people. But he says, We did not follow cleverly devised tales 
when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. And he's speaking about what they witnessed at the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention. You want to do well, you want to do good, pay attention to the word of God. That is his foundation leading into all the deceitfulness of the false teachers. We have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first. This is foundational. Know this before he gets into what he's about to say. Know this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. That's in direct contrast to what he's going to say about false teachers. Everything they do is their own opinion. Know this first, that no, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's foundational understanding where he's going, warning about false teachers. We talk frequently, Jim does, about the straight sticks analogy or the straight sticks method of understanding Scripture in terms of knowing first the truth being familiar and, and confident and comfortable in the gospel and the word of God before trying to understand any false gospel that's out there. You can't, if you just spend your time studying all the false teaching, there's so much out there, you're not going to know or be able to decide what's true and what's not if you don't have a strong foundation, if you don't have the word of God for with to compare it. So that's the straight sticks mentality. You spend time with the straight sticks, observing them so that you recognize the counterfeit. And, I, and the other analogy, too, is, is the, the individual who studies counterfeit currency does not do so by just studying all the fake and phony money that's out there. They do so studying a dollar bill meticulously every square centimeter of that dollar bill. When a fake bill comes across their desk, they can recognize it instantly because they have so studied the true and the genuine that they recognize the fake. And that needs to be our mentality in understanding and observing false teachers. We have to be familiar with the original if we are going to recognize the counterfeit. All right, so verse 1 of Second Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. He's talking about historically, we can look back in the Old Testament, we're going to look back at a few of those examples to familiarize ourselves uh, with you know, both God's judgment, uh, how Israel was to handle them, and some of the, uh, the methods in which they used to deceive people of Israel. Well, he says false prophets first and false teachers. 
the Greek, and I will probably like your help in it's it's the prefix is pseudo pseudo prophetess. How do you say that? I've got a Greek expert in the front row, so I can yeah. use him. Right. So false or pseudo, both in the in the prophets and the same uh, prefix pseudo uh, with the teachers. A common understanding we use that in our language today in in terms such as pseudoscience, uh, something that you know represents itself as scientific but but does not adhere to the scientific method and, and is usually devised and crafted in such a way that it's intentionally designed to deceive and usually separate you from your money, which is very similar to how false prophets offer, operate as well pseudo teachers teaching a pseudo-doctrine, false teachers teaching false doctrine. So I mentioned I do want to look at uh, some examples in the Old Testament of these false teachers just so we can kind of get a, a lead into this text. Let's look at how Israel was to handle the, uh, the Old Testaments under the, the law in Deuteronomy. And we'll turn to Deuteronomy 13 and verses 1 through 5. If a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of the prophets or the dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, you shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt. So the punishment is death. That's how Israel was to handle false teachers, false prophets that came into their midst. Jeremiah has a lot to say about false prophets as well. And I want to read Jeremiah 23. I'm not going to read really the whole chapter we could read, but I don't want to do that in the interest of time. So I'm going to read uh, verses 9 through 24 of Jeremiah uh, chapter 23 concerning the false prophets that were in the midst of Israel. As for the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones tremble. I have been like a drunk man, drunken man, even like a man overcome with wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is filled with adulterers, and the land mourns because of the curse. The pastures of the wilderness have dried up, and their course also is evil. And their might is not right, for both prophet and priest are polluted even in my house, I have found their wickedness, declares the Lord. Therefore, their way is like a slippery path to them. And that's going to coincide very well with what Peter has to say. Their ways are slippery, sneaky, cunning, secret. That's a sure sign of a false prophet. Ways are like a slippery path to them. They will be driven away into the gloom and fall down in it. For I will bring calamity upon them the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. 
Moreover, among the prophets of Samaria, I say, I saw an offense. They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray. And also among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. The commitment of adultery and walking in falsehood, and they strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom and their inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, concerning the prophets, behold, I am going to feed them wormwood and make their drink poisonous water. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, the pollution has gone forth into all the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination. That's going to come into play as well. Not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you will have peace. For as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, calamity will not overcome you. But who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and he should not and he should see and hear his word? Who has given heed to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord has gone forth in wrath, even a whirling tempest. It will swirl down on the heads of the wicked, and the anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and carried out the purpose of his heart in the last days. He will clearly understand it, and he will send these prophets. I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have announced my words to my people, and they would have turned them back from their evil way. And from their evil deeds. So, another strong condemnation from the Lord in concerning false teachers that were among Israel. And I do want to point out one other Old Testament reference here before we get into uh, the text tonight. And that this is actually, it is directly involved with the text tonight. And it's going to be mentioned here a little later on. We're going to talk about it uh, a couple times. But the other example is uh, Balaam in Numbers 22. And if you'll read, if we'll scroll down here, just kind of jumping ahead. And my goal tonight is just to, I'm not going to do a verse-by-verse -verse, uh, study through here, but uh, a general uh, analysis and elevated view of kind of the whole chapter. But I will not go over everything verse-by-verse, -verse, and I hope that... This will encourage you to go back and study it, all three chapters. So in verses 15 and 16 of 2 Peter 2, uh, in, in talking about this other Old Testament false prophet, this false teacher, uh, in whom here in this text, Peter is comparing directly to the, to the whole of false prophets and false teachers. And he says that they have forsaken the right way, and have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. That's what the false prophets do. They love the wages of unrighteousness. Balaam was a prophet for hire, and he loved to follow the wages of unrighteousness. He loved to pursue money and other things, as we're going to see here soon. But he received a rebuke of his own transgression from a mute donkey, speaking with a voice of a man restraining the madness of the prophet. 
So Balaam is kind of this representative prophet that kind of is the figurehead for what false prophets are. They walk in the way of Balaam, and we even will look at it a little bit later in Revelation uh, chapter 2. Uh, there are some in the midst of uh, the church at Pergamum there who are said to have gone the way of Balaam. He's kind of the example, this this false prophet for hire who pursues all his fleshly desires and goes after money and, and can be bought and loves unrighteousness. So back to verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Secretly and privily, as the King James says in, covertly, there's a method of stealth to which they try to infiltrate the church and the people of God. It's kind of like a Trojan horse where it will come as what appears to be a gift or what appears to be good. But in actuality, the inside is just filled with that that intends to destroy you. And it distracts. It's kind of a, a mirage. It, it appears like it would be something good, but actually there's nothing there of any substance. So that, that is kind of their method, their method of infiltration, their method of secrecy. Their intention is to deceive. And Jesus also says this in Matthew chapter uh, 7 about this intentional design to deceive and come in 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 secret. He says, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are as ravening wolves. So they will put on an appearance that looks like a Christian, that looks like a teacher of God. They'll say, they'll talk about God, they'll talk about Jesus, talk about grace. May even talk about Calvinism, may even say lots of things, but once you let your guard down, and that's the goal, to get you to let your guard down so that they can introduce their opinions, their teaching, taking it out of context, anything that will take you away from Jesus. That's their goal. And they will introduce destructive heresies. There's a sense in their method where they're trying to introduce and trying to bring in something appealing to the flesh. In fact, he is going to talk about that, something novel, a novelty, something new, something exciting. And this is very prevalent in our day, as we know, something that makes you feel better, something that uh, you can go to and, and, and improve your life. You can get more friends. You can get improve your relationships, have more, do more, be a better person, Anything that is about self, improving self, anything that is not the true gospel. And, and, and if you're in a church that the majority of what is being spoken from, from the pulpit is about improving self, is about self-help and things like that, run from that. Because they have set their priority. It's not Christ. It's the self. We preach Christ and Him crucified. That's all we want. None of the rest of that stuff, it's not sheep food, and it won't hold the attention of a true sheep. And in our Sunday morning studies, we've actually discussed this uh, recently as well, 
if you remember a couple weeks ago now in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and if you want to turn there, or you don't need to, I can just read it here quickly, but Paul is saying the same thing to the Corinthians and telling them not to be surprised at this technique when he says, but what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity for those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which we are boasting for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise them as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So it's no wonder we ought not to be surprised or marvel at this. It's no wonder if the servants of Satan act in accordance in the same way that Satan acted, disguising himself as light, not coming to you in a way in which some might portray Satan as being evil and, and dark and, and coming with the pitchfork. No, he's going to come to you like your best friend. So this is really what Peter's getting at in uh, Second Peter here, Second Peter 2, that they come in secretly and they introduce destructive heresies that deny Christ. The heresies are self-chosen opinions that can't be verified by Scripture or, in fact, sometimes they're even just blatantly opposite of Scripture. You can get on YouTube or any type of Christian bookstore and find all types that will proclaim any number of wild heresies and, and, and subtle heresies, things from you know de denying the deity of Christ, uh, denying the Trinity, um, modalism, Denying the resurrection, denying the infallibility of Scripture, that's a big one. Getting you to question the text and therefore pulling the rug out from under you. You could question everything. <clears throat> Placing a mediator between God and man, something other than Christ, like a pope. Um, and then, of course, there's the, uh, the leaven of the Pharisees, legalism. That's, that's a big one. So be aware of the different types of heresies. And then the question becomes, how do we test these? How do we know whether these teachers, whether these, these prophets, what they're saying is accurate? And I think there's two different ways. There's two ways. And I, John, uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 uh, gives us one of those ways, and probably the, the, the main way. Beloved, do not... Believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we are to test the spirit. We're supposed to try it. Test the veracity of what they are saying. Like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. You have to take what they're saying, confirm it, compare it to scripture. And, and you can't just take anything at his word. You can't just ask followers, hey, is this person trustworthy? Because as we're going to see, he's going to say many are going to follow after their ways. So you can't trust what another individual has to say. You have to do the due diligence, compare it with the scripture and test it that way. And then referencing back uh, to Matthew chapter 7, 
verses 16 and 17, Jesus speaking. Uh, he says, Beware of the false prophets who come in as sheep, come in to you with sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. We read that bef- just before. And then he's going to go on to say, You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, and every bad tree bears bad fruit. So you have to check their fruit. You have to compare and look at their fruit. You will know them by their fruits. Are they fruits of righteousness or are they ungodly fruits that will reap condemnation? So check the message with what's being said. Check it against the scripture and look for the fruit. And now we see that's the method that they use is to secretly introduce and, and what they're introducing secretly is the destructive heresies. And what is the result of that? Well, the result introduce secretly will introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. And the result here, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality. So it brings destruction upon themselves, but many will follow after them. And like we've been reading in Matthew 24, referencing back as he said, Jesus says a lot of the same things here. He says in Matthew 7, verse 13, we all know the passage, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter therein. Broad is the way. Many will follow. Same thing Peter is saying here. Many are going to follow after it because it's going to be sensual. It's going to please their flesh. It's going to be appealing. It's going to be something new and interesting and, and something that appeals to the masses. It's not going to be just simple truth. It's just simple gospel. It has to be something more to appeal to the flesh. Broad is that way and uh, wide is the gate. And many here will follow just as Peter says. So their message is effective in, in, in bringing in lots of people. And I want to just read a couple things, uh, just referencing back to uh, Jeremiah and talking about when he was discussing the false prophets and how that people will follow after this message and gladly so in many cases. Jeremiah says of the uh, people in Israel that prophets prophesied falsely. This is Jeremiah 531. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule on their own authority and my people love it so. They love it. It sounds good to them. They want, they want a prophet that prophesies according to their opinions, according to their desires. That's what they want. Because don't we all want a God that is in accordance with our desires? And then uh, another interesting Old, ref, uh, Old Testament reference too explains the desire of the flesh to gravitate towards prophets that uh, prophesy falsely and not those that do so uh, in a righteous and godly way. And 1 Kings 22, uh, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and Ahab, the king of Israel, are discussing about going up to Ramoth-Gilead, and they're discussing whether they should go and try to take Ramoth-Gilead if they can win that battle. And they consult with false prophets. They bring in a bunch of false prophets who... 
testify for them. And the, the false prophets, of course, they say, go up for the Lord is giving you the land uh, to the king. Go get it. Bring back the spoils. You're going to be living your best life now and everything is going to be great. So that is the message of the false prophets. Do what you want because the Lord has willed it. But Jehoshaphat asked, is there anyone that will prophesy for the Lord here? Anyone we can go to? And then it's interesting to hear Ahab's reply here. He says, and this really highlights exactly how the flesh feels about true prophets versus false prophets. There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And he is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. I hate the true prophets. I like the false prophets that say what I want to say. That's appealing. That's appealing to my flesh. And it's the same way here with the false prophets that will try to infiltrate the church, try to uh, attack the word of God, try to attack the people of God. They will do so and many will follow them because it is appealing to their flesh as well. And then I want to read 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 1 through 4. This gives us another picture of how the flesh desires to hear what it wants versus the true gospel, the true God. Paul and Timothy, as he is adjuring Timothy to uh, preach the word, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by, appear- and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ear from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That's what we're talking about. Wanting to have their ears tickled, wanting to have their ears scratched. And many people will follow thereafter. There is a, I, I spoke a little bit before about just kind of the, uh, the uh, idea of novelty with false teachers that something new, something interesting, that's what he's talking about with having their ears tickled. They want to hear something new. They want to hear something different. Not that old boring gospel, not that antiquated truth. We know that. Just give us a new take, a new version, something new. And they will do, we'll have churches that will do surveys and focus groups that will find out exactly what type of itch you have in your ear so they can adapt and be that itch uh, for you, so they can scratch that itch for you, so they could take advantage of you. But that's not the true gospel. It's a man-made, man-centered version. And the truth is, if the gospel of God's sovereign grace and Christ's finished work is boring, if you, if you desire something novel and, and you find that to be boring and, and it doesn't appeal to you or it's antiquated or it's old, if the gospel of God's finished work is boring and you prefer novelty, there's either one of two things is true. Either you're not hearing the true gospel or that true gospel has fallen on deaf ears. Because if the gospel of Christ's death his burial, his resurrection, 
his taking your sin debt, taking the blunt of God's wrath upon himself and imputing his righteousness into you and, and dying and resurrecting from the grave, if that is not enough to make your soul leap with joy from whenever you hear it for the first time you were converted until now and every day in between, if that is not enough to you to satisfy you, to thrill your soul, then nothing is going to do that, unfortunately. The gospel is not novel, but it is good news. It's always been good news. It was good news at the cross. It's been good news in the early church. It was good news in the Reformation. It was good news yesterday when you messed up and I messed up. It's good news today, and it'll be good news in perpetuity always, even throughout eternity. So, What's the other way? Let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 2 here. Many will follow their sensuality. That's their method, their, their sensuality, their pernicious ways is what the King James says. That's what many are going to seek after. It means unbridled. It means undisciplined. It means having no foundation or authority. And it means lustful. It's a common description of false teachers. I mentioned Revelation 2 early, earlier when, uh, in, the, in the letter to the church at Pergamos. And it says, But I have a few things against you. You have some who are with you, which are teaching the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. That's pernicious ways. That's sensuality. Unbridled discipline. Undisciplined. No foundation of authority. And with that, many times leading to sacrifice to idols, sacrifice to other gods, and often accompanied with, since it's from an unbridled individual, practice of sexual immorality too, as we saw uh, with Balaam. And I think he talks about that specifically in, in Numbers chapter 31. So sensuality and, and, and their pernicious ways is the method by which they entice people in. What is the result of that? The truth is maligned. The truth is evil spoken of is what the, the King James says. Many will follow their sensual ways, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned, blasphemed, mocked, ridiculed, scourged. Uh, because it's boring, like I said. It's, it's old-fashioned. It, it, it's easy to make fun of. It's not appealing to us. It's outdated. Uh, it'll be easily ridiculed. And, and if we're to look at this as the result of, of truth being maligned, as the result of false prophets bringing in their sensual ways, and that's what brings the malignment and evil speaking of truth, that ought to be a pretty good indication of our day, just how many false teachers and false prophets there are, because it's hard to see truth being maligned much more than it is today when even such a simple thing as walking out and saying a man is a man and a woman is a woman can be maligned. So it's scary to think how many false teachers must be out there maligning the, the truth to get to that degree. Amen. Spurgeon says, in talking about truth being maligned in the world, he says, I believe that one reason why the church has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. 
And I agree with Mr. Spurgeon, and I wonder what he would be thinking right now because it has to be much worse than his day. He must be rolling in his grave. So the uh, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned, and, their, and in their greed, they will exploit you. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words, lies, fabrications. King James says feigned words. It means molded or crafted words. These are smooth talkers using language in a way that they can tr- construct something to make it sound good, but in actuality, it's evil. One of the most common ways in which we see it is Scripture taking out of context. We see so many, John 3.16, so many different Scriptures that are ripped out of their context and whole different unbiblical theologies are placed upon them. That's, a, that's a, the way in which they use false words. And I know... Uh, just by way of, of, of another example here locally, uh, a false teacher here in Franklin, and, and she has, yes, I said she, um, she has a, a ministry, and one of the kind of the overarching themes of that ministry, I think it's maybe a title of books and some of the, the messages, is Saved by Faithfulness, which uh, is, is an interesting phrase. There certainly someone could look at that and say, yeah, well, we're saved by grace through faith. You know, I, you know, I know that. But it's intentionally worded this way to try to deceive. Because if you listen to any of her material, it's quite obvious that what she means by faithfulness is faithfully doing works. So what she's saying is saved by faith. But it's much better and much easier to word it as faithfulness. But we are not, we know faith is a gift. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. So this is just an example of how they take, can take words, twist them around, give them different meanings, change them slightly, and in order to deceive. And they deceive in order to exploit you with their greed. There's an element uh, of prey. They, they, there's a predatory nature with the false teacher, they're looking for someone to take advantage of. And if we look back down in uh, verse 13, he's going to hit on that a little bit more in his further description of these false teachers. Uh, he says, they, speaking of the false teachers, uh, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They're unbridled, so that makes sense. They would enjoy that. Uh, They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery and never ceasing from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Enticing stable souls. That's the point I was trying to, wanted you to see here in how they are exploiting you, how they are exploiting you with their greed. They're enticing a specific audience that they're looking for, someone who is unstable, someone who is maybe not as learned, maybe a new Christian, that they think they can persuade more easily, and they can attack someone in that manner, certainly someone unstable, um, someone feeding on milk instead of meat, someone who has doubt, someone who doubts their eternal security, Uh, like I said, a, a new believer. 
we can very easily see how this works. Imagine someone who is doubting their eternal security. They're, they're, they're grieved with their sin and, and they're concerned about their eternal destination. And then here's the solution from the false teacher. They come in and say, oh, we can fix that. Here, go talk to this man in this box and confess the sin to him and it'll be okay. Say if you hail Mary's, praise Mary after that and it'll be okay. No mention of Christ. Mm-hmm. See how it works? And you see who is really exalted. That's how they exploit those unstable souls. He's going to uh, continue in the next few verses discussing the judgment that's coming upon these false teachers and these false prophets. And and we're going to look at that, but I'm going to skip down a little bit because I want to kind of end with the judgment. Um, But he's going to give us a few more Uh, details on their character, their function, and how they operate. And I want to look at that here, too. Uh, In verse 10, he says something very interesting. He says, uh, speaking of these uh, false teachers, uh, they despise authority. They're daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. That's interesting. What is he talking about? They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring reviling judgments against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, that sounds like wrath fitted, vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. Yeah. These, uh, they don't do that. They don't, they don't tremble when uh, and they revile angelic Majesties. What's he talking about? Well, in the parable, parallel passage in Jude, uh, he gives us a little more information. In fact, if you're studying through this, then definitely read the book of Jude as well, because so much of it correlates directly to what Peter is saying here in, in chapter 2. And Jude is going to give us a little bit more information so we can understand and determine exactly what he means when he says they did not tremble when they revile angelic masters. Majesties, and it's interesting. So Jude chapter 1, and there is only one chapter, uh, verse 8. Yet in the same way these men, talking about false uh, teachers as well here in in this context, also by dreaming, remember we talked about the dreamers of dreams, those who see visions claim that, that they're of God. Also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority, they revile angelic majesties. Same thing Peter just said. But he's going to give us this example that follows that helps us to understand it a little better. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Christ, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you, but these men revile the things which they do not understand. So... What Peter is saying there that they assume an authority that's really only God's authority. They will, in speaking to spirits and, you know, I'm assuming demons, they will assume that they have the power to speak judgment to them, to cast them into hell, and they will just do so flippantly. And unfortunately, we see things like that on television, all types of uh, uh television evangelists and and false teachers who will get up and just, without even thinking of it, speak 
and say they are casting a demon into hell and they have no authority to do that. Not even Michael the archangel would dare even think about that. But these brute beasts who are you know, unreasoning animals to be captured and killed, they will do that without a second thought. They assume God's authority by doing this. And one other thing I want to wrap up with the, uh, with the judgment that, that Peter is going to discuss that, that is coming to these false teachers. But I want to look at just one other thing briefly here in verse uh, 17. He refers to these teachers as they are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness is reserved. They are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. What does he mean by that? What he is saying is... As a well would have an appearance that it's going to give you something of nourishment, something refreshing, so are these false teachers. They have that appearance. They have that appearance like they're going to give you something good, like you can glean from them. But in actuality, they are without water. They have nothing of substance to offer. They only have the veneer. They only have the appearance of that, but they do not have any substance. They're like mists driven by the storm. They're like clouds that the storm chases away, and there's no rain to nourish the ground. There's no benefit from it. And that is how false teaching brings forth no, pro- no profit, but only destruction and only judgment. So let's wrap up with the, uh, the judgment that, uh, that is coming to these, uh, that, that God has pronounced and that is coming to these individuals. Uh, he's going to discuss it in, in examples and compare it to uh, Noah's day and then also a lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll read it here. I'll just read the uh, verse 3 through uh, 10. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. The destruction is determined. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. There's your example. They don't adhere to it. They don't see it. They just fully write on with their false teaching. And if he rescued righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, that's exactly what he just described, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those, these false teachers, especially those who indulge the flesh and and its corrupt desires and despise authority. The judgment of God is determined upon these individuals, and it's going to come strong and harsh. One of the ways to look at it, if we thought about it in this way, for any husband, if someone came to your wife and mistreated her and exploited her and used her and took advantage of her, how angry would you be with that person? How much more 
is the bridegroom going to be angry at those who mistreat the bride of Christ? Tenfold. They do not know the judgment that is coming upon them. I want to read uh, just one other thing here. And I, I had this at men's group when we went through this portion. It's, a, it's an article that I found um, that does a good job of really, it's entitled uh, Seven Traits of a False Teacher. It's by Colin, uh, Colin Smith, put forward by the Gospel Coalition. And it does a good job of really taking the elements of what Peter is saying in chapter 1 with the, the true gospel, the true teaching, and comparing it to chapter 2 with the false teaching so we understand the comparison and contrast between the two. And he has seven different things that he highlights in there. I'll just read through these quickly because I, it, it's a very good comparison. And I definitely encourage you to study this more, to, to read through chapters 1, 2, and 3, and Jude as well um, in, in your study of this. So one of the first main differences is different source. Where's the message coming from? This is a different source. Peter says, We do not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's in chapter 1, verse 16. And then he says of the false teachers, they will exploit you with stories that are made up. That's in 2, 3. So the true teacher sources are that of the Bible, and the false teacher relies on his own creativity to make up words and his own message. So we have different sources, contrast and sources. Number two is a different message. What is the substance of the message? Uh, for the true teacher, Jesus Christ is central. And we have everything we need in life and godliness in him. That's chapter 1, verse 3. For the false teacher, in contrast, Jesus is in the margins. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. We just read that. That's chapter one, or chapter two, verse one. So there's a completely different message, a different substance in the message. Number three is a different position. Uh, in what position will the message leave you? That's the question. Where does this leave you? For the true Christian escapes the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. That's chapter 1, verse 4. And then in chapter 2, Peter says, in describing the counterfeit Christian or the false teacher, they promise freedom while they themselves are slaves to depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever he is mastered by. That's 2.19. We didn't get to that verse, um, but that's in there too. So that's the different position. That's where it leaves you. Slave to your own sin in the case of the false teacher. A different character is number four. What kind of person does the message produce? What is the result? What is the fruit of the, of the message? For the true believer pursues goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. We read that earlier. That's, verse, that's chapter 1, verse 4, or verse 5. In contrast, in the counterfeit Christian is marked by arrogance and slander, that's in 2.10, and they are experts in greed, their eyes are full of adultery, that's 2.14, and they despise authority, that's 2.10. Completely different, opposite character. Number five is different appeal. Why should you listen to the message? It's a different appeal. The true teacher appeals to Scripture, 
we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it. We read that. That's verse one, or chapter 1, verse 9. Chapter 2, the false teacher, by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful nature, they entice people who are, ex- who are barely escaping those who live in error. That's 2.18. Completely different appeal. And then different fruit. What is the result of the message have in people's lives? For the true believer, it is effective and produces in his and her knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's in chapter 1, verse 8. And the counterfeit believer and the false teacher are springs without water. That's 2.17. Completely different fruit. And lastly, a different end. Where, where, where does this ultimately lead to you? in each case, in chapter 1 and then chapter 2. Here we find the most disturbing contrast of all. The true believer will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's chapter 1, verse 11. And then by contrast, the false believer with experience will experience swift destruction, chapter 2, verse 1, and their condemnation from long ago has been hanging over them and the destruction is not asleep. That's chapter 2, verse 3. So there's seven different contrasting characteristics of a false teacher and a true teacher from chapter 2 and chapter 1. So I just want to end with a, on a little, I guess, maybe more positive note after all of that. And that is just in Matthew chapter 16, after Peter, uh, Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And he tells him, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not, will not prevail against it. So that's a comforting thought, knowing that there's all these false teachers, false doctors out there looking to exploit, looking to pray. There'll be waves of them. It says, it says they will not prevail. It doesn't say they're not going to try and keep coming and keep trying to deceive. But we have that sure promise that the true church will prevail because of Christ's finished work. That's all I have for you this evening. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. And we thank you that we can trust you and we know that we have a, a sure word from you that the, the bride of Christ will be secured and will not succumb to the false teachers, the false prophets that would wish to do it harm, but you have preserved, protected your own. We ask that you would uh, dismiss us this evening. We ask that you would guide our hearts, our minds throughout the remainder of this week. And we ask that if uh, anyone is able to ask us, that we would not hesitate to speak to your glory, to your praise, and present the true gospel unvarnished with any attempt or any appeal to the flesh, but Christ alone. In Jesus' name, amen.